Welcome to this special edition of the Emerging Civil War podcast. I'm Chris Mikowski. For some people, the Civil War ended on the afternoon of May 10th, 1863, when Stonewall Jackson died. Others consider the event a major turning point of the war, while others say Jackson's wounding during the battle was actually a stroke of luck for the Army of Northern Virginia. Recently, I sat down with ECW historians Chris White and Rob Orison to talk about Jackson's wounding and the effect it had. We recorded a video chat, which we have posted to the ECW YouTube page. What follows in this episode of the podcast is the audio of that chat. We on occasion refer to a few maps that appeared in the video, and we encourage you to watch the video if you'd like to see those. But otherwise, this podcast presents that conversation in full. We have had a lot of questions about the 7th Annual Emerging Civil War Symposium at Stevenson Ridge. And right now, things are still green-lighted to go forward with the event. The stay-at-home order in Virginia is in effect until June 10th, at which time Governor Northam is expected to provide some updates. But at that point, we will make a final decision as to whether we're able to move forward with the symposium. Until then, though, the green light is on. So join us at Stevenson Ridge in Spotsylvania Courthouse, August 7th, 8th, and 9th, 2020. Tickets are $155. We'll be talking about fallen leaders with a keynote address from Gordon Ray talking about the loss of Jeb Stewart at Yellow Tavern and a Sunday tour by Greg Mertz of the area where James Longstreet was wounded in the wilderness. We've got 10 other speakers lined up for the weekend. Looking forward to a great event, getting together and sharing exciting history after this long lockdown. But please stay tuned to the blog for the latest updates as the situation develops. May 10th marks the anniversary of Stonewall Jackson's death. I'm Chris Mikowski, and today on the Emerging Civil War podcast, we'll talk about Stonewall Jackson's accidental wounding at the hands of his own men during the Battle of Chancellorsville. Today on the Emerging Civil War podcast. Welcome to the Emerging Civil War podcast. I am Chris Mikowski, and joining me tonight is my ECW co-founder, Chris White, and our good pal, Rob Orison. And uh, Rob is representing our good friends at Emerging Revolutionary War tonight. And uh, we're here to talk a little bit about Stonewall Jackson. And I figure uh, I, I'm a Jackson fan. Chris is not necessarily a Jackson fan. Rob is not necessarily a Jackson fan. So this could be dogpile on me night tonight. But uh, we're going to talk a little bit uh, about Stonewall Jackson. It is May, the anniversary of his wounding at Chancellorsville on May 2nd, 1863, and his subsequent death a few days later, May 10th, 1863, as he crossed over the river to rest under the shade of the trees. Uh, and Chris, let me just ask you to kind of chime in here. Um, Stonewall Jackson, uh, Chancellorsville, that seems to be the story everybody loves, but is that really the story of Chancellorsville? James Longstreet for life. 
That's what I got to say about that. <laughs> the um, No, it's not. I, I think it's really an unfair to all of the men in the Army Northern Virginia who are not named Stonewall Jackson. I also think it's a, uh, you know, a disservice to the men of the Army of the Potomac who, who fought the Army North Virginia there. You know, the, the Battle of Chancellorsville, the real battle that takes place starts on May the 3rd. Um, we have opening actions on May the 1st, which will take place at an area we call the First Day's Battlefield. It's out by Lick Run. Um, um, it, it's preserved by the American Battlefield Trust today. It's along modern day Route 3. That battle will set the stage for Stonewall Jackson's flank attack the next day, which is a 12-mile circuitous march, which will carry Jackson's 28,000 men around the front and right flank of the Union Army, where Jackson will then attack from west to the east towards Fredericksburg. At the same time, Robert E. Lee, who I don't think gets enough credit for this battle, um, is going to be sitting on the far side of what is essentially a salient or a portion of the Union line that protrudes outward. Think of a large pimple. Um, and, ja and, and Jackson and Lee will be between or will be on either side of the Union Army with the Union Army between them. Um, it's actually a very precarious position for both Jackson and Lee, uh, being that they're outnumbered more than two to one at this point. Union Army has about 90,000 men around Chancellorsville. Lee and Jackson may maybe can muster 45 to 50,000 around Chancellorsville itself. So um, you, you have this, this story of Jackson making the flank attack, and then you have the story of him being wounded that evening on May 2nd of 1863, um, which turns the story in, into one man. And, and many, many Civil War buffs, their Civil War ends on the evening of May 2nd or maybe on May 10th when Jackson dies eight days later. I know a few historians whose Civil War ends right then and there uh, on May 2nd of 1863. But the next day... Afternoon. That's it. <laughs> yeah, the, the next day, you have 22,000 plus casualties. You're almost in a Tetum level number of casualties. You have Lee, who is going to dislodge the, the Union Army from their position around Chancellorsville. You have two battles at, uh, around Fredericksburg, the Second Battle of Fredericksburg, the Battle of Salem Church. So there's three battles at Chancellorsville the next day, 22,000 plus casualties, 64 of Lee's 130 regimental commanders go down. I mean, there's so much to this story uh, on May the 3rd and then May the 4th when Lee tries to land that killing blow. Now, I want to go back to something you said a second ago where uh, Lee doesn't get enough credit for this battle. And Rob, I want to kind of pitch it over to you for a quick second because when we talked about doing this uh, topic tonight, you said, oh yeah, I want to talk about how Jackson ruins Lee's plans. So you apparently <laughs> don't think that, uh, that Lee gets enough credit for this either. I wouldn't say ruin Lee's plans, but I, no, no, I guess, you, you did say ruin Lee's plans. I guess what I would say, well, yeah, uh, maybe I did. Um, I guess I would say, what did Jackson do at Chancellorsville that deserves accolades? Um, he doesn't accomplish the mission given to him. He does collapse that flank, but that's not, as you all know, Lee's um, ultimate goal in every battle Lee fights is not to gain land, not to just kill the enemy soldiers, it is to destroy that army he's going against. And that did not happen. That did not get accomplished. And even if he wasn't wounded that night, it probably wouldn't have gotten accomplished because there's no way he's going to move those men in the dark in the thicket of the wilderness to cut off any Union troops uh, on this side, on the southern side of the Rappahannock. So, um, you know, I don't know. There's a lot that goes into moving that many men that far, but much like um, Longstreet at Chin Ridge here at Second Manassas, they get a late start and there's just not enough daylight to accomplish what they're trying to accomplish that afternoon. So uh, maybe I'm a little harsh in saying he ruined Lee's plan. Uh, I'll say he didn't accomplish Lee's plan or Lee's goal. Um, 
but I don't know what he does at Chancellorsville. And here comes the hate tweet. It's tweets, I'm sure. But I don't know what he does at Chancellorsville um, that he is so revered for on that day, other than being other than being shot. So, and I, I like he gets shot at his Jimi Hendrix moment. Like he's at the peak of his fame, his peak of his powers, and he doesn't have time to become the old fat Elvis. You know, if I can mix yeah. there, you know. So he 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 dies at the peak of his glory, and uh, you know he's not making those movies with the jumpsuits and the big sideburns. You know? um, so Chris, let me ask you to kind of you know what is Lee's plan? There's a lot of mythology around Lee and Jackson sitting on the cracker boxes with the map spread out next to the. the firelight is there trying to cook up this plan. Um, what is it that they're trying to do? Well, uh, Lee and Jackson, um, you know, it, it just to give a real brief overview of the, the Chancellorsville campaign, you know, so as you alluded to, there's this cracker box meeting. This is what's on the screen right now. Um, and, and I'll show some maps here in a second. What, what Robert E. Lee has to do in April of 1863 um, is essentially play to the tune of Joseph Hooker, the Union Army commander. Uh, the Union Army has approximately 130,000 men ready to go uh, at the outset of the April, uh, late April campaign. And what Hooker intends to do is, is use maneuver and his overwhelming numbers to force Lee's hand. Lee has been stationed around Fredericksburg, Virginia, which is 50 miles south of Washington, 55 miles north of the Confederate capital of Richmond. He's been there all winter. Um, but the supply situation is strained, just given that, that Central and Northern Virginia have been fought over for the last two years, essentially. Um, you've had armies back and forth over top of this land, like two plagues of locusts. Uh, the locals even call the, their Confederate defenders lice because they can't get rid of them. They keep coming back. Um, so Lee has to spread his army out all the way from Norfolk, Virginia and Suffolk, Virginia, where James Longstreet and two of his divisions of the First Corps are stationed, sending supplies up to Richmond and Lee's army. Then you have Lee's army spread out for about 35 to 40 miles along the Rapidan and Rappahannock rivers, and then deeper down towards uh, Ashland that you see on the map. And so what you're what you're seeing here is Lee's army very spread out and it is under under strength. He has about 60 to 65,000 men when the spring campaign starts, much like he will have one year later at the outset of the Overland campaign in May of 1864. Now Hooker, um, who is in charge of the Union Army, comes up with a very simple plan. He is going to split his army into three wings. The left wing will uh, cross below Fredericksburg and keeps Lee's attention, while his right wing will make a, a swinging march around the left flank of the Confederates, utilize a number of river fords, Ely's Ford, Germana Ford, Kelly's Ford, to ford the Rappahannock and Rappahannock Rivers, and then start to march towards Chancellorsville, which is a crossroads town, quote, unquote. Um, he doesn't intend to fight there, Hooker does not. He wants to keep marching towards Fredericksburg, where he will uh, smash Lee between the two wings of his army or force them to come out of their works uh, and fight him in open fields or ingloriously fly towards Richmond, where you see a dotted line on our screen. Um, that would be George Stoneman's cavalry, who would be swinging to the south, cutting the rail lines as well as communication lines and thwarting Lee as he would potentially be falling back towards Richmond. Now, now I wanna, can I just pause you just for a quick second? I'm used to the John Madden pen by this point. I have to admit, I'm a little disappointed that um, the map is not getting little yellow lines on it, Chris. I'm restraining myself. Oh, okay. This is, this is, I am restraining myself. I'm sure it will come out later, but, but for now, you know, I, I, I'm going to try to use my, my skills as an interpreter um, to, to allow the, the beautiful map that Hal Jesperson has created for, for us to uh, do, the, do the talking. 
Um, so what Lee then does, he meets with, with Stonewall Jackson on April 29th below Fredericksburg. That's whenever the Union Army makes its move across the Rappahannock River um, and towards Lee's men stationed near Fredericksburg. This will be the first time in the campaign that, that Jackson decides that he wants to strike out towards uh, the Union forces. But he and Lee will talk for a few minutes, and both of them agree that this aggressive movement wasn't as aggressive on the Union side as they thought it would be, and maybe something else is amiss. Now, to the West, they'll get word from Jeb Stewart, as well as a few other uh, junior Confederate officers saying there are Union troops coming in towards our rear. Lee will ascertain that there's a problem out to the West. Then he will dispatch his de facto second in command, uh, Longstreet, I'm sorry, Jackson, because Longstreet is not here. Jackson's his second in command. Jackson will march out to the West with some troops starting on April 30th, around midnight to, to um, on April 30th to May 1st. And that's when you'll have a meeting engagement out near Chancellorsville. That's where Jackson will uh, engage with Hooker's army and that's where he will stop Hooker's army cold. Um, it has just as much to do with Joe Hooker not pushing his advantage that he has against Jackson as it does with Jackson's aggressiveness that'll show out in that sector. And, and to Rob's point where Jackson doesn't do a lot in this battle, he doesn't feel, I, I think May 1st, he does a, a, a good job of forcing Hooker and thwarting Lee, uh, Hooker's plan. From that point forward, you know, we can definitely debate. Um, so so what will happen next uh, very briefly, is that uh, the two sides, as they meet out um, on this first day's battlefield, as, as we call it, at the American Battlefield Trust, um, they will, the Union Army will start to pull back around the Chancellorsville crossroads because uh, Jackson, commanding some of his own troops, as well as Longstreet's troops that are on the field here, um, you'll see the Union Army start to pull back around the crossroads at Chancellorsville. Once this happens, Joe Hooker's given up the initiative, and that's what, what Lee needed. Lee needed the initiative pulled away from Hooker, whose army is just so vast and so large and has, has the advantage coming into this campaign. Now, with Joe Hooker starting to go on the defensive around the Chancellorsville crossroads, what Lee can do, do here is to start to develop a battle plan. And that battle plan, it's debated, and we can talk about this, of actually who comes up with it. Um, you know, Lee and Jackson, here comes the John Madden pen, um, who will be um, in this area, uh, will sit down, they'll meet on their cracker box, and they will decide somehow a lot of people give Jackson the credit. I think it's Lee, Jackson, Stewart, a few other people who come up with this plan to, to send Jackson's 28,000-man corps um, around the front of the Union Army, uh, march for about 12 miles using some roads, and arrive on the right flank of the Union Army. Lee, at the same time, will have about 14,000 men here on the eastern side of uh, a salient. On the western side, you'll have Jackson, and then in the middle, you have about 90,000 Union soldiers who are some positioned very well, some not positioned so well. Earthen fortifications, trees will be a problem. Um, this is called a wilderness for a reason. It's a dense second and third growth forest, 70 square miles, and some soldiers said even at the brightest point of the day, you couldn't see the forest floor because the foliage was so thick. So this is not a great battlefield. Hooker didn't intend to fight here. Now Lee did come out of his works to fight him like he wanted. He has him uh, in actually a pretty good position with Jackson on one flank and Lee on the other. All Hooker has to do is lurch out and attack. Um, but what Lee and Jackson want to do is smash this salient from both sides, as, as Rob uh, alluded to. 
Lee always wants to go for broke. It's that Western way of war, as we call it, as military historians go for that decisive battle. Now, Rob, this is not the first time that Lee has uh, sent Jackson long down the field. Um, is this a, you know, it's kind of Jackson's specialty to go off on, on these uh, kind of uh, large maneuvers, big grand thinking. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I was really impressed by Chris's map there with the John Madden pen. That was pretty cool. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think the most notable, obviously, Lee gives Jackson a lot of leeway in many different uh, circumstances. The Valley Campaign in 62 is one of them. But I think um, one of the ones where he really trusts him um, is the Second Manassas Campaign when, um, you know, uh, Lee is trying to confront basically two Union armies in Virginia, Army of Potomac under McClellan which would be posted along uh, the James River at Harrison's Landing at that point. Um, of course, uh, Lincoln is calling McClellan back north, but of course Lee doesn't really know if that's true or not, so he has to decide what to do, and he decides to go after the Army of Virginia, which is located in the Culpeper County, Central Virginia, under John Pope. Of course, John Pope is, is famous for uh, his tactics um, against civilians in Virginia. He's called the miscreant, um, but I think, you know, Pope is kind of – uh, looked at wrongly at that point in time because what Pope is doing in 1862 is what Union armies will be doing in 1864 and that's basically bringing total war to the south um, but Lee decides to move Jackson up there um, Jackson does confront part of Pope's army at Cedar Mountain um, not a great battle for Jackson because he outnumbers his opponent and almost loses that battle um, but he does he is able to win that that battle and Pope will uh, pull back uh, to a place called Rappahannock Station, which is today Remington, Virginia. And then Lee will decide to bring the rest of his army up to join with Jackson. And then Lee again will give Jackson the uh, privilege of leading half of the army, a little bit, a little bit under half of his army on a wide uh, flank march, um, you know, 22 miles in basically two days. Um, actually around longer than 30, 22 miles, but uh, a two-day two hike um, going from Culpeper all the way out to Jeffersonton, which is a smaller village still there today, up through um, the Loudoun Valley, then through Thoroughfare Gap. And then uh, Jackson's um, mission is to strike the supply line, uh, the Army of Virginia's supply line along the Orange and Alexandria Railroad. He'll do that at a place called Bristow Station. Um, and from there, just determine, as Lee would say, determine where you can find an advantage. Um, of course, they are able to, to do that at the Battle of Second Manassas, where Jackson does a great job fighting off Pope's army by himself for almost two days. Um, and then, of course, Longstreet will arrive, and Lee, I think Lee's greatest victory is Second Manassas, not Chancellorsville, um, just because of oh, dare all you. I know, right? I know. I'm glad someone said something there. Um, just because of all the political impacts that had um, the next step beyond that, um, obviously, Gettysburg is very important. But I think, I think the high, you know, I'm a Joe Harsh disciple, so I apologize for that up front. But after Second Manassas, if you look at what's going on in the West and what's going on in the East, the Confederate tide is rising, as Joe Harsh said. And I think that's, that's probably the time for the Confederacy really to do something that maybe possibly win the war. Um, I won't say win the war, but uh, obviously have a huge impact. Bigger than 1863, in my opinion. Um, so Jackson's been given many chances by Lee. Lee trusts him. Uh, there's a couple of times where Jackson has let him down. 
you know, we could probably talk about sleeping at White Oak Swamp here later if you want. Um, the, you know, the seven days campaign for Jackson is probably his worst moment during the war, but he's definitely trusted by Lee and has been throughout the war up to this point. I think uh, in the Antietam campaign, I'm going out to Harper's Ferry. He's got that independent command there. Right. Um, down at Fredericksburg, when Lee is coalescing around the city, he sends Jackson down to uh, Port Royal. So, you know, Jackson gets a lot of these independent missions. Here we're on the same battlefield. We're not using kind of a landscape across the map as we are. But, uh, you know, Lee has a lot of confidence that he can send Jackson on one of these sweeping maneuvers. Oh, look, look who, who has shown up here in my office. Well, it's, it's Stonewall Jackson himself. So uh, he's just uh, lending his spirit to our conversation. So Chris, as uh, Jackson gets into position on the flank there, um, things went pretty smoothly for him, but uh, he's a little slower getting into position than everybody had hoped. Yeah, and you know, to Rob's point, I, I think that um, Jackson, and this is something I always explore whenever I'm giving tours of Chancellorsville or other places where Jackson's involved. I, you know, I, I have to say Jackson does not play well with others. Um, he does not like the chain of command at all. Um, that that is proven out time and time again, uh, even in the old army. You know, he, he's, he gets into a huff with people, um, constantly leveling charges against subordinates or of superiors. I mean, that's one of the reasons he, he left the, the old army was because of a fight with William Blinky French and, and Absalom Baird. Um, you know, he, he's just a guy who as an independent commander where when he's successful beating up on B-list union generals and he outnumbers them, you know, he, he can do well. Uh, but once push comes to shove and he actually is, is called on his called, you know, to task by people like AP Hill and others, you know, he, he does not play well with others. He has some deep seated trust issues. They go back to his, his childhood. Um, you know, that's, that's just the, the fact of the matter. All you have to do is psychologically look at, at Stonewall Jackson. The guy has some deep seated trust issues, which then plays out with his chain of command. And on the morning of, of May 2nd, you know, like you said, he, he, he does get off to a late start. It's about 7.30 in the morning when he starts his, his flank attack. Um, I'll, I'll bring that map up for, for everybody to see. Um, and I shouldn't say the flank attack, I should say the flank march. Um, so as he's, as he's moving forward, you know, Jackson has 12 miles to cover. You know, and something people have to, to keep in mind, and, and to be fair to Jackson, this is the first campaign of the season. These guys are just getting their legs under them again, um, getting their marching legs. They had to march from Fredericksburg the day before. Now here they are camped, getting ready to march again. Um, and it's not exactly a 12-mile march. Some of these units are stationed 15 or more miles away from the point of contact with the enemy. Um, so Jackson will, will get moving about 7.30. Um, he'll move down to an area called the Catherine Iron Furnace there. Um, there'll be a, a small unit action around the Catherine Iron Furnace late in the morning, early afternoon of May the 2nd, when the Union sec, uh, Third Corps will advance down towards the Catherine Iron Furnace, trying to figure out exactly what Jackson is doing, because they could spot Jackson's column moving through a, a split in the trees and shells are raining in on Jackson's column. So this is not a secretive attack at this point. Um, Jackson's 28,000 men will march, they'll get to the Catherine Iron Furnace, they'll go deeper to the south. Joe Hooker, you know, has some advantages here. First off, he's on a defensive. Um, he has uh, hot air balloons that he can send up into the air, aeronauts as they're known. He can, they can see out into the woods to a point, but they can't figure out exactly wh what's going on because they can't see the great distance given the wilderness here. One of those balloons is north of Chancellorsville. The other one's over by Fredericksburg. Um, so the Union Army knows something is up, but what ends up happening is that that Joe Hooker misinterprets what Lee and Jackson are doing. 
Hooker, rightfully so, thinks that this column is actually heading off in this direction towards Gordonsville, Virginia, which is uh, a rail center, it's a supply center, and it's open fields where Lee could do better to fight in open fields and get re re reinforcements and supplies. So that's the idea. Uh, it's also allegedly the fried chicken capital of the United States, I always like mm -hmm. to point out. Um, <laughs> that's right. So what one when Hooker loses sight of these guys, he doesn't know that, that Jackson's actually doubling back north uh, because he's using some roads that are unknown to the Union forces. They're not on the maps. Uh, they don't have Google Earth. They don't have Google Maps. And maps are a problem at this point. So Jackson starts to turn to the north. Hooker, in the meantime, has sent his entire 18,000-man Third Army Corps down to the Iron Furnace. He's called out to his right flank, out to the 11th Corps. He's called their reserve brigade of about 12 to 1,400 men down to the Iron Furnace adding insult to injury, their incompetent commander, Oliver Otis Howard, will ride along with them, the 11th Corps commander, he's gonna go down here. So what Hooker has done is created a gap in the center of his line almost. He's isolated the Union left flank, or I'm sorry, right flank. Uh, he has the smallest corps on that flank, but they also don't think that they're gonna be attacked by Confederates. They've lost their reserve brigade, they've lost their commander. And now Stonewall Jackson is starting to materialize out in these woods. His men will start to deploy as early as 2 to 2.30 in the afternoon. Never trust any of their watches. But he won't launch his attack until about 5.15 because his column is going to be strung out. Plus, they're dealing with the woods to the north and to the south side of the Orange Turnpike, which is modern-day Route 3. And that will be Jackson's axis of advance towards the Chancellorsville Crossroads and towards where Robert E. Lee's waiting troops are. And as he's getting, you know, his, his marches is so long his column is strung out over 10 miles on the road it takes about six hours for the column to pass any one point so if he's going to wait for all of that to close up he's never going to be able to launch his attack in a timely fashion so he's going to launch that attack with two out of his three divisions and send them forward and then have ap hill come in as the fresh reserves um, but i gotta wonder how fresh are those reserves chris if they've been marching all day they've marched out from fredericksburg they can't be all that fresh no, not really. I mean, what, what you're looking at here is a map from the American Battlefield Trust. These are available over at battlefields.org. Um, you know, this is Jackson's flank attack. You know, the Union 11th Corps is largely, as you can see on the map, facing to the south. Their main line runs to the south side of the Orange Turnpike, which is, uh, again, modern-day Route 3. Um, and out on the right flank, you can see two regiments facing to the west, the 41st New York, the 153rd Pennsylvania. Um, you know, these units are what are supposed to meet Robert Rhodes' 8,000 Confederates, which are in the first line. Second line will be Raleigh Colston's brigade, uh, I'm sorry, divisions, uh, division, uh, and then coming up in reserve will be A.P. Hill. Um, you know, Jackson, because he doesn't have a lot of time, he can't extend his flank towards the Rappahannock River and Rapidan Rivers, which are off to the north and out to the west, uh, because of the time of day, as well as the trees, you know, he's got to put together essentially a division front, stack it one behind the other behind the other, um, and use the weight of his soldiers to carry the position. Now, granted, you know, there's only a handful of cannon and perhaps 800 Union soldiers facing out to the west. They're out well outflanked by the Confederates to the north and to the south. So, you know, they really aren't going to stand a chance because what will end up happening is at about 5.15 in the afternoon, Jackson's men will come rolling down and as any of the U Union 11th Corps men try to meet this threat, 
as they start to wheel backwards, uh, keeping that unit cohesion, they're going to have one domino falling on top of them, meaning one regiment to their right will fall, then the next, then the next, and it's just going to intermingle all of these commands to the point, which you see on the right-hand side of the map, the fragmented elements of the 11th Corps. That is the 11th Corps being swept off the field in approximately 45 minutes to an hour. They don't all just break and run. There is a, uh, a few different stands, uh, specifically at a place called the Bushbeck Line, um, which is here. That is probably about a, a half hour action. That is a mix units of everything in the 11th Corps throwing together a battle line facing towards the west. They slow down Jackson's first wave. His second wave adds to the weight. And then they just take the 11th Corps off the field. And as you notice on the right-hand side of the map, there are no 11th, I'm sorry, there are no 12th or 3rd Corps troops there because there's a massive gap between the 11th Corps and the rest of the Union Army. So Jackson basically gets a whole bunch of real estate for free and is able to advance. Um, but because of all this action, his advance is pretty tumultuous, pretty uneven. Um, his line has overlapped the Federals so significantly that he's got portions of the line that are able to sweep forward uncontested, while others really get snarled uh, in, in small action combats with the Federals. But then the wilderness itself also plays a factor in bogging down this advance. Um, you know, some guys run into bogs, thickets, holly bushes. Um, I like to tell people it's, it's pricker bushes, holly bushes, um, rhododendrons, whiplash oaks, scraggly pines, and it's all full of snakes and ticks. I mean, just an absolutely <laughs> uh, unhospitable region. Um, and so it, it, it looms large in, in um, opposing Jackson's advance. So as his men start to get bogged down, Jackson continues to push them forward, push them forward, but eventually they run out of steam. What causes him to finally cause a, a, bring everything to a halt, Chris? I mean, there, there's a few there's a few reasons that that they're forced to to come to a halt, but mainly um, it is going to be unit cohesion breaking down with the the Confederate forces. What, what you're going to start to see, as Chris pointed out, you know, Mother Nature's playing against them. Um, this is this is Jackson's last line. This is AP Hill's uh, light division. There's nothing light about it. It's twelve thousand plus men here on May second of eighteen sixty three. Um, they're deploying in the woods. Uh, you can see the plank road in the middle. That's modern day Route three. It's it's also known as the Orange Turnpike. Name is interchangeable at different points. Made it very confusing until the late 90s whenever the 911 system kind of worked that out down here in this part of Virginia for us. But the area here, you can see Jackson coming up. Now Jackson's men, you know, they're running into a few problems. Number one is Mother Nature. Number two is the fact that the Union Army, many of them are not standing and fighting, they're running away. So to capture any of these men, you might have to run from your lines, break those lines to tackle them and capture your men. Large numbers of Union soldiers are, are being captured, so you have to deal with those, so those prisoners. Then these men have been marching all day. They're hungry. They're going to go through the camps, and they're going to eat. Uh, they're going to grab pots, pans, eat, shout, fire, and rush on, as one man will say. Um, and then you will also have some Union counterattacks. You'll have the Bushbeck line, which is a defensive stand. Then you'll have the 8th Pennsylvania Cavalry, who will show up onto the field and strike Jackson's center. So you, you'll have this intermingling of, of Confederate units, Darkness is starting to come across the field. It's coming around 8 to 8.15 on the evening of May 2nd. Um, so it's a lot of factors that start to play into to this uh, attack. So Jackson's men may have advanced for three miles, his first two waves. Um, that's coming from their jumping off point until the point where they've been halted and pulled off of the, off of the um, front and allowed Jack, uh, Hill's men to come to the front and assume the role of the next offensive. So, Rob, um, 
This has been a pretty tumultuous couple hours for both armies as they're fighting their way through the wilderness, fighting each other, fighting their own fears. Um, put me in the heads of what's going on with these guys at this moment. Uh, well, I mean, you know, um, you guys have, have spoken really well about the march, you know, getting up early and, and, and the long march they had to take to get to the point of making this attack. And then, of course, you know, it may seem easy to us to push the left of the core out of the way, but, you know, some Confederates did get shot at. Uh, so <laughs> we don't want to forget that. Um, like Chris just mentioned Bushbeck line being probably one of the more well-known spots on the battlefield of that taking place. So, you know, uh, these guys are fought out. Uh, at least the first wave is fought out. And I'm sure the AP Hills guys are not, you know, well-rested, as we just mentioned a little while ago. Um, and, you know, it's also, you know, it's getting dark. And I don't know many Civil War soldiers that like fighting in the dark. Um, you know, at least I've never read any letters of, of them saying they prefer it that way. Um, of course, you know, back then with so much fog of war going on, it's hard to know, um, especially in this kind of atmosphere, right, with um, with the wilderness and the thickets and everything you just so poetically described, um, ticks, snakes, everything else. Um, you know, it's not, it's not a welcoming place to, to fight a battle anyways, and now it's getting dark, and these guys are worn out. Um, but, you know, I, one thing Jackson does have, and I know I'm very critical of Jackson, but his men love him, and I think they would follow him to hell and back if they could. Um, and so he definitely, you know, the men are, um, for most part, I would think, are very motivated um, because of their leader. Um, not talking about the gods and generals, Jackson. I'm talking about the real guy. Um, you know, the, the, the crazy scene there, you know, with all the men swarming around Jackson and, and loving on him. Um, they did have affection for him. But, you know, you guys have, have really well put in place the long march, the early morning get up, the long, the long march, and then the conditions of fighting. Um, but, again, you know, I think we don't give – I can't believe I'm saying this. Um, we don't give the 11th Corps guys enough credit um, for, you know, they did slow him down a little bit. It may be a speed bump, but, the, you know, those guys didn't just pick up and run, as Chris said. So th those guys did fight. Um, not all of them, but but they did fight. And, and they, you know, they did have an impact on how the battle, um, you know, uh, the outcome of the battle. What stock do you put in union leadership at this point to be able to respond to this crisis? Well, as, as Chris said, you know, Hooker, after the first day, first day's fight, um, of course, you know, history has been hard on Hooker too, but I'm not going to say he checks out, but he's definitely been, rat, you know, rattled. Um, you know, um, you got John Reynolds sleeping at one point in time. Uh, I'm sorry, I had to pick on John Reynolds for a second. Uh, <laughs> I was asked once if he's narcoleptic because he falls asleep. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you know, there's some, there's some good, there's some good core commanders in this army, you know, and, and uh, you know, I, I don't think they perform badly as, as Chris said at the very beginning, you know, the heaviest fighting isn't the day that we're talking about. It's the day next. And the federal army does pretty well holding off all these assaults. Um, you know, Howard obviously doesn't do well. And then of course, you know, Howard doesn't do terribly bad when he gets shifted out West. So I think, uh, you know, we like to pick on Hooker and the federal command a lot, but um, given the circumstances, and obviously we can argue about the, how they allowed this battle to develop the way it did, which obviously was a failing on their part. But I think once the fighting started, these guys fought pretty well, and their leaders should be given credit for that. 
This is yeah, a very pro-union, very pro-union Rob here. I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's a Rob's point. I mean, the 11th Corps is probably the worst lead corps. Um, you know, Howard is, is only been in command for less than a month at this point. Uh, he's not well loved by the men of the 11th Corps. They don't like him. They lost their, their loved, beloved commander, Franz Siegel, who is not anything is, you know, he, he's not a great commander either. Um, their first division commander, Charles Devins, is, is incompetent. Um, you know, he's been seen this day running his horse into a tree where he hurt his leg. And then what do you do to take care of that? Drink whiskey. So, you know, he's potentially drunk on the field, doesn't particularly like any of the Germans. The Germans at this point, you know, it's not 100% German courts, you know, maybe 60%, between 56 and 60% German um, or of other nationalities from that part of Europe. So what you're looking at there is you have some problems, but you have other good, you actually have decent commanders in the 11th Corps at the brigade level um, and division level. Carl Schertz, even though I don't think he gets, gets enough credit. You know, he, he's one who, who tries to stand and fight Vladimir Shezhanovsky, Adolphus Bushbeck, others try, uh, Colonel John Lee, who's out on that end of the line. These guys all want to put up a fight, and they try. They really do. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you know, they're in a terrible position, and there's, there's nothing they can do. Once you move into the, the core level, you know, you look at – you have a lot of solid core commanders, including Dan Sickles. Dan Sickles might not be, you know, the best core commander out there, but that guy can – he can fight. He can handle a core fairly well. Um, but you've got George Meade, who, who is the best combat commander in the Army of the Potomac at this point, um, Darius Couch, and then at the division level, Union Army has competent division – level commanders and it'll come to show the next day it'll be the high, high command and as jim lighthizer always says you know the head uh the, the, the head stinks from the top and um here it's that way here at the or the fish stinks from the top this is the way it is here with the union high command the problem is joe hooker not trusting those commanders underneath him fast forward two months later mm. George Gordon Meade, using largely a lot of the same guys at the Battle of Gettysburg, trusts his subordinates and ends up winning the battle. One thing I feel compelled to point out with Howard, because he does take a lot of abuse and much of it, most of it is deserved, is that when he does have to shift his reserves down to help out around Catherine Furnace, he personally leads them. And he was not a man who was short on personal bravery at all. And, you know, he thought that's where the action was. The fight had shifted down there and he's leading his men into the fight. At least that's what he's thinking. It turns out to be a completely misreading of the situation. Um, but at least he thinks he's trying to do the right thing at that right moment. Um, when Jackson's uh, men come crashing into his core, he later says, I wish I could have died because he was so embarrassed and so humiliated by the way that his men were so overcome. And he tucks the flag underneath the stump of his lost arm. He tries to rally his men and uh, um, a little too late, um, a little, uh, too little too late. Uh, but he does want to stay when they have the Council of War for the United States. He wants to stay and keep finding it out. He wants to try to redeem that uh, ruined reputation of his. So, um, Chris, let's um, kind of pick up our narrative. Let's go to this moment here. This is my little Fredericksburg National Military Park trading card of a volley in the dark. Um, Jackson's men have bogged down. I'm just pulling out all of my, uh, my tchotchke here. Tonight. I tell you what. Uh, <laughs> Um, Jackson's men have bogged down. He now needs to figure out what he's going to do to resume that attack. Can you put us back on the field? 
here, here's the far more accurate career and I. Oh, yeah. Thank you. That's what awesome. Would look like. Um, this is exactly, Great. I mean, from the battle flags all the way down to the terrain, that is 100% accurate. We're looking, at the, we're looking at the Courier and Ives print of Jackson, uh, very melodramatically leaning back. And well-dressed, too. Yes. Yeah. Looks good. I like the plumage in his hat. Yes. Um, the hat those, stays those. on as he's tipping it over. <laughs> yeah, so, um, you know, it, it, Around eight eight fifteen, and to Rob's point, you know, Gods and Jackson in many ways is a, just a horrid movie, especially whenever you get into the Chancellorsville battle and you notice the same Confederate line coming out like eight different times, same guy doing the same charge and the same scream, um, time and time again. <laughs> then you see the Magnificent Seven, as I call them, him and his staff riding down the turnpike to the front. That's farcical. And then I love whenever he would just stop and and um, pray at random too. But the you know Jackson is is close to the front he is not at the front he's not riding their pistol drawn towards the front but as i bring up um you know the the map showing what's going to turn out jackson's going to going to ride forward um to a point that is going to be an intersection of two roads one is the orange turnpike um and that's that's that modern day route three that i've mentioned a number of times right about where j and a and jackson um is it'll meet another road called the mountain road um, and then the mountain road will meet a road called the Bullock Road and run off towards the north, northeast. The plank road will run in this direction, and then you'll have the mountain road eventually near the Chancellorsville Crossroads coming together along the plank, um, the Orange Turnpike. So what Jackson's doing is, is he's called a halt for his first two waves, gets them out of the way, brings up AP Hill, who is his second in command. Hill and Jackson loathe one another. And right before the Chancellorsville campaign, it had come to loggerheads. The two are getting ready to, to do a duel uh, in a courtroom at a court martial, not a physical duel, which I would have loved to have seen because uh, I think AP Hill would have fought dirty. But the whole, the whole thing is coming to, to a head. Jackson and Hill just don't like one another. Lee has a major problem on his, on his hands with these two. Uh, and it's really petty on both sides. Uh, but regardless, Jackson pulls up Hill. Hill's his second in command. Hill is going to start deploying his light division. And Jackson is going to tell him in certain way, press them Hill, cut them off from the United States forward, press them. And what he means by that is them is obviously the enemy, the, the uh, Union Army. But he, he's going to tell Hill to cut the Union off from a Ford that would sit well off of the Bullock Road, a place called the United States Ford. I mean, this Ford is miles from the front at this point. Jackson, I think this is where he starts to, to lose it. He doesn't understand what the enemy is looking like right now. The, the enemy line is starting to pull back into a salient position. And I'll get us an, another map to, to show, show that. The, the enemy is starting to pull back um, into a, to a large pimple, as I like to call it. Um, and this is going to be problematic for the Confederates. So Joe Hooker's line, um, as I sit here to try to find it for you, is going to look something like this on the evening of May the 2nd. This isn't exact, this is a, a next day map, but um, near where Jackson is wounded, which is right about here, just below the three in Sickles, that's for the third corps. The Union uh, Army is, is well entrenched. You have the Union First Army Corps, um, which will actually at this point run off in this direction. 
the fifth core down here, Sickle's third core, the Slocum's 12th core. So this is going to be a tough nut to crack if you're, you're Jackson. There's Union troops on the evening of May 2nd at Hazel Grove. And now what, what Jackson is telling Hill to do is actually go off in this direction to go to United States Ford. You know, Hill is not only going to have to glance off the front of part of the 12th Corps at this point, he's also going to have to run into the 5th Corps, the 1st Corps, elements of 2nd Corps. He doesn't know exactly what this enemy starts to look like because Hooker is actually rolling with the punches. Hooker, who is at the Chancellorsville Crossroads, is going to order cannons to face out towards the west. He's going to order a band to start playing military airs so that that gets the men's spirits up. And then he's going to start pulling the men that he ordered from the Catherine Iron Furnace, which is down in this direction, back into the battle line. So Hooker is rolling with the punches. And Jackson is going to start to hear out in front of his men um, pickaxes. He's going to hear trees falling. And what he's actually hearing is the Union Army out in front of him starting to entrench. Um, he's also starting to hear troops shift around. So Jackson does not like what he's starting to hear. And Jackson himself will actually ride with uh, eight other men uh, down this mountain road. He's going to follow a, a young man from the 9th Virginia Cav who lives at the end of the Bullock Road, a kid named Oscar um, no, sorry, that's Oscar Bullock's um, farm. He's going to follow David Kyle. Kyle is going to lead him down this, this um, mountain road. And eventually Jackson's going to stop, sit there for a moment, listen, hear those trees falling, and then start to turn back. Now, this is not a, a static moment like you see in this map. Other things are happening. Down the, the plank road that you see here, the Orange Turnpike, modern day Route 3, is going to be uh, AP Hill with 10 men riding forward. So you have 19 horsemen, including Jackson and Hill, going down uh, the mountain road as well as the turnpike. As they go forward, the uh, 18th and 37th North Carolina of James Lane's North Carolina Brigade are starting to deploy. Nobody knows that the two senior officers on this flank of the battlefield for the Confederacy are out in front. This goes back to Jackson's trust issues. He is a lieutenant general. He has lieutenants to do this job for him. But Jackson, rather than sending someone out to the front, which he should be doing, this is no place for a lieutenant general. People can say, oh, no, it's bravery, blah, blah, blah. No, it's stupidity. He is going to ride out there with, with eight men. He's going to turn back. And he is going to, as he turns back, start to receive peppering shots from the 18th North Carolina. Hill will do the same thing. He'll ride down the road, can't find Jackson. Hill, of course, is like, man, I'm going to be court-martialed for everything, so I got to find out where Jackson is. I got to find out where I'm supposed to attack. He starts to turn back as well. So you have about 19 horsemen riding back towards the 18th and 37th North Carolina. These North Carolinians are looking around. They see at least 80 dead horses around them, as well as about 20 to 30 dead and wounded Union cavalrymen because there was a failed cavalry charge at the 8th Pennsylvania Cav here just a few hours earlier. So you have these dismounted troopers who are wounded off to the side of the road or dead, 80 dead horses, and now you have a cavalcade of officers riding towards you from the point where the enemy is sitting. So if you're in the 18th or 37th North Carolina, you're going to go, oh crap, we have another cav attack, we have to meet this, and that's exactly what's going to happen. Chris, do you want to do you want me to keep going or do you want to go? 
<laughs> no, it's, it's a great instance of the fog of war because of the 8th Virginia Cavalry. Um, there have there been horsemen out here where there shouldn't be. There's a, a Pennsylvania um, infantry unit, the 128th Pennsylvania, that kind of comes careening in from the southwest. They miss the pickets and run into the 7th North Carolina. So there's a, a quick little exchange there and all the Pennsylvanians get captured. So now there are infantry out there where there shouldn't be. And it's in the middle of this no man's land between that picket line that you see in the main battle line that Jackson and Hill have written. And I'll go back to your comment earlier about Jackson's trust issues. Uh, you know, you say that that's no place for a lieutenant general. A.P. Hill's out there. He's a major general. It's no place for him either. But he knows that if he doesn't go see things from himself, um, Jackson's not going to trust the word of any of his lieutenants either. So Hill really has to, you know, feels compelled to get this information firsthand for himself because he knows Jackson's not going to take the word of uh, of any old lieutenant. That's why Jackson himself is out there. So, yeah, yeah, and Jackson's, you know, trust issues go back to his childhood. You know, he lost both of his parents at a young age. He, he lost his wife. He's lost two children. His sister has stuck with the North. Uh, that was his closest uh, companion outside of his, his second wife. Um, you know, he has some deep-seated trust issues, and it comes out time and time again. This is a guy who just really um, doesn't see the, he only sees the world in black and white and there's no pun intended. There's no gray area in, in his world. It, it is one way or the other. And, and, you know, Jackson just, he, he is inflexible, which a lot of people say, oh, that's great. But, you know, the men who served underneath him, there are a lot of letters of, of men who do not like Stonewall Jackson during the war. After the war, you know, he's placed up on that pedestal. But there are men in the first corps, there are men in the second corps who are actually happy that Jackson had, had been wounded and was kind of a cup up, comeuppance for him. Uh, A.P. Hill is one of them who, who wrote about Jackson's wounding a, a few months prior to the Battle of Chancellorsville. There's no love lost there. So, so Jackson's trust issues really that's why he's out here. He doesn't even trust David Kyle. David Kyle sent to him uh, by Jeb Stewart, who, you know, Jackson allegedly trusts, and Kyle, who's from this area, and says that he knows every hog path in this area. Jackson doesn't even believe him, and he rides behind Kyle for a ways and just to see if this yokel knows where he's going. Then he figures it out, and then Jackson kind of takes the lead and rides down the road himself. Yeah, I mean, it's literally Kyle's backyard. He lives in the Bullock Farm. And... Yeah, yeah. Uh, Rob, you're nodding your head. Is Christmas I have a question, actually. I mean, you know, if we're allowed to, if we're allowed to ask each other questions, yeah. one thing that has never been fully explained to me or, you know, to a lot of people that I've talked to about this incident is the mountain road. Why is it called the mountain road? There's not a mountain within 50 miles of this spot, but you always see it called mountain road, right? And all the interpreters at the site call it the mountain mm -hmm. road, but where's the mountain? You want that one, Chris? <laughs> you want me to take one? Go ahead, go. So, so the mountain road actually, um, you know, I was digging around in papers now over a decade ago, um, and I found that this road actually, you know, we, it, we show it on this map. It's a little bit over two miles long, maybe in this area, maybe a mile and a half to two miles long. And, and it goes for, uh, from the Chancellorsville crossroads. It, it doesn't stop right there. It's just to the west of it. Then it picks up where you see here, runs through where the visitor center sits today, as you can see on the map, and then connects back with modern day three. Um, right about where you see the J&A in Jackson. The mountain road then again picks up um, out near Germana, which is about seven miles to the west, uh, uh, to the left, if you're looking at this map. And it starts to run towards the Shenandoah Mountains. So whenever I, I read that, this, this road was for two different purposes. And it, it's the, even though it, it terminates and then comes back to life down the road a little ways uh, to the west, 
what I've read um, and found is that it was running out towards the Shenandoah Ma or the Blue Ridge Mountains. Um, and it was also a logging road and it was a road to help avoid the tolls. Oh, okay. So they cut this road to buy, bypass some of the toll booths that would have been running along the, the Orange Turnpike uh, because this was one of the improved roads that was paid for. So that's, that's where I found it from. Um, and that was back in 2008. I found that in the papers oh. of the Fredericksburg and Spotsylvania National Military Park. And that's why the road appears and disappears from the turnpike. Right, where the toll, the toll right. booths are, right? Which is pretty common for that time period for any turnpike. Yeah. 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 So, so this thing, that, that was the best that I found. I think that was written in the 1830s or 40s, talking yeah. about it. Um, and that would pick up roughly, by my understanding of that account, near where the 7-Eleven is today. Um, it, it comes back to life out near the, the modern-day Route 20, Route 3 intersection out on the Wilderness Battlefield. So... Jackson's come back. He's been peppered um, by shots from the 18th North Carolina. Hill has come back. He's also caught in some of that peppering. And a concentrated volley is going to ripple up from the south as, as, uh, as this uh, fog of war continues. When Jackson's men are first shot at, several of the men get shot off their horses. One of them is his brother-in-law, Joseph Morrison, is serving as a staff officer. And uh, Morrison hops up and says, stop, you're falling into your own men. And the 18th North Carolina being a veteran unit, they've seen every trick in the book. Uh, they've seen dead horses out here where there shouldn't be. They've had uh, you know, uh, infantry out here where there shouldn't be. So when this body of horsemen comes at them, they have every reason to think that this is a federal party of horsemen coming at them. And so their major, John Barry, yells out, it's alive, boys, pour it into him. And a concentrated volley erupts from the whole line. And that's what catches Jackson. He gets hit three times. Now, Chris is showing a map right now that uh, indicates the location along the mountain road where Jackson is wounded. Um, he's got another resource here I'm going to ask him to pull up that uh, looks a little more scattershot. I'm going to ask him to break this down uh, and sort of tell the story of, of, of how we know where Jackson is wounded and how we know where he wasn't wounded. Um, other research has suggested and other accounts have suggested a whole variety of other places where Jackson uh, may have actually gotten shot. Uh, Chris, do you want to talk about this for a moment? Yeah, I like to call this the dartboard map where somebody just took darts and started throwing it at the, at the map to see where Jackson may or may not have been, been actually hit. Um, so, so there are a lot of people who claim to have been out here with Jackson. There are a lot of people who were with him. There are a lot of people who were not. So Jackson's in the, North, the 18th North Carolina, um, which is mispositioned on this map, um, would have been deployed back along the, the Bullock Road a little bit. Um, they would have been firing at about 96 yards. Um, yes, that's what historians do. They will actually walk out here and, and measure out where the, the wounding would be. Jackson was potentially wounded along the mountain road um, in this area where the, the visitor center sits today. The visitor center, which is actually my backdrop here on Zoom, um, that's the dedication in the 1960s of the Chancellorsville Battlefield Visitor Center. Um, this is the area where Bob Crick is going to find the former chief historian of Fredericksburg and Spotsylvania National Military Park, the leading expert on the Army of Northern Virginia. He found the, the account that talks about David Kyle leading Jackson's men down the mountain road, as well as a few other accounts. And he places Jackson 
um, and what I think quite accurately here along the mountain road, um, trying to get up out of the line of fire. Now Jackson's going to be struck three times, once in the right palm of his hand, which will hit the webbing, um, and then he'll be struck in the left arm, once in the lower portion, once in the upper portion, and his horse will, will start to careen off in this direction. Um, Jackson will, will be taken off the horse somewhere out in this area where there are way too many dots. Um, because does it matter if he's here, here, here? I, I mean, that's within like three feet. Um, and then up here, it's within about six feet. You know, th this is just, I think, utter nonsense, but that's just me. Um, so as you, as you come down here, you're going to have Jackson laid off his horse somewhere around two monuments that are out there today. One's stone, quartz stone. The other one is a large obelisk monument dedicated in 1888 um, by the governor of Virginia at the time, Fitzhugh Lee, former Confederate and nephew of, of uh, Robert E. Lee. So Jackson's horse is out here. He's laid down somewhere out along the plank road, um, which makes sense. This will get him close enough to the plank road, the Orange Turnpike, where an ambulance can come up and there is an ambulance that will come up into this vicinity. Um, he'll be placed on a stretcher and to be carried to the rear, but one of the stretcher bearers will be struck by a, a shell um, and he will be felled, dropping Jackson. Jackson will be placed on the stretcher a second time. The guy will trip over, the one of the stretcher bearers will trip over a branch. Jackson will fall to the ground for a second time. And then eventually he's gonna be placed on an ambulance and taken to the rear. Uh, but there are all kinds of different accounts that, that come out here. You know, the, the reality is up until the late 90s, a lot of people thought it was in the vicinity of the monuments uh, where Jackson was wounded. Most likely that is where he's taken off of his horse. And those monuments were also placed close to the main road. So you could see the vicinity of where Jackson was wounded. Um, according to Kyle and other accounts, he is going to be wounded Jackson up along the mountain road. And that's the interpretation that's out there today with the National Park Service. And I think it's a great illustration of why it's important to actually walk the ground. Um, because if you look at the map here, it, you know, well, actually one of the Jackson monuments is missing from the map too. Um, but uh, why would Jackson be riding through the middle of the woods when he was getting shot? He's not on the mountain road for most of these uh, potential accounts. If you read uh, Bud Robertson's book, which I think is fantastic, uh, he actually has little Sorrel um, bolting off toward the parking lot. Um, so again, um, maybe not necessarily a familiarity with the ground, but helps you kind of make sense of, of what is uh, accurate and, and, and what makes sense with some of these accounts. Um, the other thing is, Chris points out, is, is Little Sorrel bolts to the south toward the Plank Road. That's also going to put Jackson close enough so that A.P. Hill can hear the action. When A.P. Hill was out on the Plank Road, his men got caught in that same crossfire. Everybody in his party gets shot or has their horse shot out from underneath them and is captured. Everybody but Hill who dives into the ditch at the last moment. And when he hears Jackson and his staff officers talking a few yards away from him in the woods, uh, Hill's able to push through and find Jackson there. Uh, I know a lot of uh, Jackson uh, fans like to talk about a reconciliation that happened between Jackson and Hill. I think that's more wishful thinking than actually anything that's documented, but it is going to be up the hill to take over. He's the senior division commander on the field. Um, but as the Artillery comes crashing in that Chris mentioned a few seconds ago. Um, a piece of shrapnel is going to explode from one of those shells and hit Hill across the back of both legs, incapacitating him in such a way that he can't ride his horse, so he's not going to be able to take command. And uh, Chris, I know that you, you tend to think that maybe that wasn't so much a bad injury as Hill just trying to avoid a bullet of a different yeah. sort. Let me, uh, let me bring up the, the accurate map of the wounding of Stonewall Jackson. Um, so, you know, when Jackson goes down, um, 
you know, it, obviously there's a vacuum in the chain of command and that is where AP Hill will, will step in. Um, you know, Jackson, you know, when he was carried on the stretcher, you know, he is going to start bleeding profusely when he's dropped the second time, uh, potentially a bone shard is going to penetrate one of his arteries and he'll start to bleed. He'll lose, you know, maybe half of his blood by the time he is going to be operated on around two o'clock in the morning of May the 3rd. His left arm will be amputated about three inches below his left shoulder blade. Now, now Jackson, um, when he is dropped, he's dropped from roughly uh, five foot eight uh, inches off the ground. That's the average Civil War soldier's height, and they would be carrying him on a stretcher up on their shoulder. So he's going to fall uh, very, very far, very quickly. Um, so he's placed on this ambulance, taken back to the Wilderness Tavern. Um, and then A.P. Hill, within five to ten minutes, is knocked out of action. And in Hill, as Chris said, um, I don't think his heart was into this. He wrote a letter on November 18th of 1862 to Jeb Stewart complaining about having to serve under Jackson. Hill was attached to Jackson starting with the second Manassas campaign and, and was stuck with Jackson until uh, Jackson's demise at Chancellorsville. And he's going to talk about being stuck under this crazy old Presbyterian fool. Those are his words. And he said that he is going, he's like the porcupine, meaning Hill. Um, and he has all of his, his, his stickers out. Um, you know, he's very upset having to serve under Jackson, but he, he goes on to say that, um, you know, it doesn't matter what happens with Stonewall Jackson, and I'm paraphrasing the, the letter, because even if the battle is lost, you know, Jackson will not get any blame, but Hill will get all of the blame because Jackson gets all the laudits and Hill is the, the enemy of the state, as it were. So Hill, having this in the back of his mind, mix that with the fact he's taking over a, a, a you know, a pitch battle, and he was on the the court-martial block, kind of like Fitz John Porter was after the Second Battle of Manassas. I'm not sure Hill's heart is into this. Um, as soon as the battle ends, Hill is miraculously able to take command again um, and, and jump right back into it. So, you know, there, there could be something there that that he is not wanting to take over this this potential mess. Because remember, the Battle of Chancellorsville is not won and lost here on May the second. When Jackson goes down, Hill's men are deployed to attack towards, you know, 85,000 or so Union soldiers. Jackson wants Hill to attack up towards the 1st, the 5th, the 12th, and the 2nd Army Corps. You know, this is one Confederate division um, taking on elements of, of four Federal Infantry Corps, which would be in the way between here and, and, Bank, and um, United States Ford. This is a no-win situation. Now to get to Lee, what's on the other side of it? You have to deal with the second, the third, the 12th Corps at least to get to, to Robert E. Lee's position. You know, so on the evening of May the 2nd, it's dark, it's nine o'clock at night, two of your three divisions have been played out. They've been, they're in the woods trying to pull themselves together after this a flank attack. You've got Lee, who's at least two miles away. You have your men who are trying to figure out where they are in the woods and they're accidentally shooting their own commander. And now you have an aroused enemy uh, between 80 and 85,000 men between you and Robert E. Lee. Is, this is the Kobayashi Maru if you're Bill Shatner and the Wrath of Khan. Wow. <laughs> Stonewall Jackson's lost so much blood, he's gotten pale. And it looks like he's lost both of them. How, how many Jackson Chotskys do you have there, Mikowski? I only have two with me here, but I do have others in the in the other room. But uh, I want I want to bring you back into this conversation here, Rob, and ask you about this moment. And uh, what does this moment mean for the Confederates, and what has it come to mean? For I mean, what it means day of, and what it means today is you know almost two different things, right? Um, you know, as Chris just said, it's, I think. This evening, the Army of Northern Virginia is in a very precarious situation. 
they're split, um, they're confused, they've lost easily the, the you know Lee's second second in command on the field. They've lost you know, AP Hill, who who um, knows at least knows the men. Uh, we can argue his competence all day long, but at least he would be you know familiar with the guys he would be leading. Um, so they're they're in a, a precarious situation. Even though today we think of uh, this being Lee's greatest victory, and um, you know Jackson won this huge battle at the very beginning, and and what happened afterward was just kind of postscript. But you guys know that it's not the case. Most of the fighting takes place the next day and the day after. Um, but you know you had the rise of Jeb Stewart as an infantry commander here, taking over for Jackson. Um, our good friend Ryan Quint would be jumping up and down right now if we didn't mention Drainsville. Drainsville, Drainsville, Drainsville. Drainsville, small little action up here in Fairfax County in Northern Virginia, where Stewart's in command of a couple regiments of infantry. Um, and, you know, from all accounts, and, and I think Stewart does pretty well leading these men, um, you know, it, it does surprise me that, that Stewart was willing to kind of take take that command and then you know as as chris alluded to uh earlier ap hill comes back eventually and takes command of this of of course the whole army is reconfigured um but takes command of a lot of, of of jackson's guys um but you know it's a precarious situation that night and i think that's that's lost a lot in the overall history of the battle um one of the interesting stories I wrote a blog piece about, yes, Chris, many years ago, I used to write blog pieces for Emerging Civil War. Uh, there's a guy on the, there's a guy in the, um, in the ambulance that evening, um, Major uh, Arthur Rogers, who is in the ambulance with Crutchfield, who've both been wounded. Um, Rogers is kind of a neat guy. He's from where I'm from. He's up here from Loudoun County, Aldi, Middleburg area. Uh, goes to VMI, drops out of VMI, um, physically can't make it. Reminds me of myself if I ever went to military school, but becomes a lawyer. Um, and then when the war breaks out, forms an artillery battery, the Loudoun Artillery, um, which doesn't really have a, a crazy track record. They are at first and second Manassas, but by October 1862, the units dissolved and incorporated into other artillery battalions. Um, then Rogers will become on Crutchfield staff. And of course, he's with Crutchfield here at Chancellorsville when he's wounded. Um, they both go down. He's in the ambulance. Um, when Jackson's brought to the ambulance, he realizes that Crutchfield is in worse shape than he is, and he gives up his spot. You know, and that's the family lore. He gives up his spot. I'm pretty sure he was going to give it up whether or not he wanted to, right? But the family, the family legend is that he gives up his spot for Jackson to ride in the ambulance. Rogers is best known for um, he recovers in Richmond, but he is the one that designs the third Confederate national flag by being very complicated and just adding that red stripe on the white flag, right? Um, but he's the one that wins a contest. They have a contest in the winter of 1864-65 to redesign the Confederate national flag because obviously, as you all know, it has the real big white field and the wind doesn't catch it. It looks like a flag of surrender. So Rogers comes up with this great idea that actually wins this competition of just adding that red stripe on the end of it. And that flag is approved by the Confederate Congress in March of 1865, which obviously, as we know, <laughs> not, not many were made. Actually, I don't believe any were made. There's some arguments about if any of those flags were made. But he's an interesting character to follow and how he ties back into the war. But he's there that evening. Um, and the famous legend, as I taught when I was a young kid, was he gave up his spot for Jackson. Um, which he probably did. But as I say, he probably was going to have to do that, whether he was so inclined or not. 
Um, Glad to see the Confederates were so focused on March of 1865 on the important things. Uh, I tell you what, hey, bureaucracy. They, they, didn't even, they needed the white flags at that point. They didn't need bureaucracy. Hey, government bureaucracy will not end, right? <laughs> no matter what's going on in the battle. Kicking and screaming. I've contended that, that Jackson's wounding at this moment is probably the best thing that could happen to Lee in the Battle of Chancellorsville. And that's kind of a provocative thing to say, I think. But um, had he survived, and a lot of people like to do this armchair generaling, as Chris and Robert both pointed out, there are significant obstacles that are still on the battlefield that he and his corps are ill-equipped to handle at this point in the fight. And so really by taking a pause at this moment, um, Jeb Stewart is going to come in and take over because um, both of Jackson's other division commanders, Riley Colson and Robert Rhodes too inexperienced. It's the first time at division command for both of them. So Stewart's going to come in and uh, take over. And uh, he's really going to reshuffle the deck and he's not going to push on to U.S. forward as Jackson had wanted to. Um, that would have taken him farther away from Robert E. Lee. Instead, he's going to try to reunite with Lee and reconnect and then allow Lee to kind of call the shots from there. Yeah, because uh, I mean, at this point, if Jackson is still in command and Hill's still in command, he's going against five full divisions of, of fresh Union troops just between the 1st and 5th Corps alone. 5th Corps, uh, only one of its divisions were he was heavily engaged on the 1st, so the other two are are fresh. The, the first corps did a hell of a lot of marching and very little fighting during this campaign. They actually sustained less than 200 casualties during the entire Chancellorsville campaign. So there you go, right there alone, you know, Hill's 12,000 men now have to take on two essentially fresh corps. And then again, not to mention the other corps that I had mentioned earlier. So uh, Jackson's going to end up um, dying of complications related to his uh, wounding. Um, uh, that'll happen on May 10th, 1863. For some people, the war ends that day, uh, as we talked about. But the real Battle of Chancellorsville starts the morning of May 3rd, um, and the casualties really get going. Second bloodiest day in American history. Um, let's keep the focus here on Jackson as we start to wrap up, fellas. Um, Rob, what's your assessment of Jackson at Chancellorsville, your final assessment? At Chancellorsville, wow. Um, I think uh, if we're going to give a grade, I'd give a B, B minus maybe. And, and I think a lot of that is um, my own, you know, background reading about this since I was a kid, probably tainting that. It's probably worse of a grade. Um, but, you know, when you read Civil War history as a kid, especially in the 80s, and, you know, you, you get this, um, this vision of him and, and how he's performing at Chancellorsville. Um, I, I, I do think that if it wasn't for Jackson, I don't know who Lee would have given this mission to, right? Um, Long, as Chris said, Longstreet's not there. Um, I don't know who Jackson would have trusted to do this maneuver, um, you know, uh, if, if Jackson was not around. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think he does, he does, it's a lot, a lot of things are working against him as far as the timing goes. And, you know, I'm not, it's, it's hard to, to blame him for that. Um, but, you know, even if he was successful and in, in, in surviving, you know, not getting wounded, as Chris said, I think um, it would have not gone well for him the very next day, um, especially if he kept with his plan. Of course, we don't know if he would have kept with his plan. Um, but I'd give him a B minus. B minus. See, and I think that's a generous grade. I think like for getting yourself shot, you get the automatic F, but that's. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> good point. <laughs> you spent too much time with me. Uh, Chris, what's your assessment of Jackson at Chancellorsville? Uh, you, you know, I think the first day he, he did well, you know, it, it, in, on April 29th, 
um, when at first he, he wants to become aggressive, then realizes with Lee um, that, that Cedric's men below Fredericksburg were not so much of a threat. I think he, he reacted there well. Um, you know, he led his men well on the, the first day. I, I, I think that, uh, you know, Hooker took victory from the jaws of defeat uh, or defeat from the jaws of victory there because, um, you know, he outflanked. Jackson's men he had more men than Jackson did but Jackson's aggression is what's going to knock uh, Hooker off kilter so I think he did well there but once you get into the flank march and once you get into his subsequent wounding you know he was slow on the march yeah he rolled up the the 11th corps uh, but by the time he is wounded a he shouldn't have been wounded because that's again his own damn fault for, for riding out like he did he should never have done that um, he should have sent lieutenants out there he had plenty of staff officers on hand um, that shows just a, a lack of trust and I think also goes to a whole nother story of how incompetent I think some of the Confederate staff officers actually were um, at the upper echelons of the Army Command of Army Northern Virginia. I think they had great commanders but I think some of their command staff were just terrible um, and then you have um, you know Jackson you know coming up with this attack towards United States forward. I don't think he understood what was in front of him. Uh, I don't think he understood the layout of the enemy. I don't think he understood anything. So I think if you're going to go with April 29th, I, I give him an A. Um, if you're going with May 1st, I give him a, a solid B. And if, you, if you're going with May 2nd, I, I give him a D minus uh, because it's just, you know, you've got Lee on one side, you've got a leaderless second corps on the other side, and you've got an enraged uh, Army, Northern, or Army of the Potomac in the middle of them. You know, and then, of course, you know, he got himself shot. You know, I don't blame John Barry because John Barry's the, oh, yeah. the 18th North Carolina gives the order to shoot Jackson. He doesn't know it's Jackson. He's he's reacting on in the moment, in the spot. People ask often, why didn't they hang him? Why didn't they shoot him? John Barry will eventually become a brigadier general in the Confederate Army. He did nothing wrong. He was not culpable. Jackson, and that just shows that Jackson was in the wrong. Mind you, his commanding officer, Thomas Purdy, um, is going to be chewed out left and right to the point that Purdy gets himself killed the next day on May the 3rd to try to make up for his men shooting Jackson on the evening of May 2nd. So, uh, D minus. That's like, I'm going to ruin your GPA, but I don't want to see you again next semester, so I'm going to yeah. pass you. He, I mean, if, if you average all those grades out, it's basically a C, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's basically so a C. We've given folks lots to think about tonight. I just want to ask you guys real quickly before we wrap up, any final thoughts you want to impart on folks before we wrap up our discussion? I'll, I'll go real quick. I know Chris has got um, probably more to say about Chancellorsville. I'm just going to say that I think when you look at Jackson's career leading up to this point, he's got great moments, but he has also really low moments. Um, and that's what makes him such an interesting figure to debate. And, you know, I, I do believe, kind of like what you said at the beginning, you know, um, he died at his apex, which if you want to be remembered throughout time as a hero, that's the time to do it. Um, you know, he, he had lots of faults, but a lot of those faults go away in the post-war era when they're talking about Jackson, you know, and lost cause theory there. Um, you know, if you study him today, there's some, there's, I think he's great in campaign strategy, but on the battlefield itself, he doesn't really show himself all that great many different times. Um, but he was aggressive, and that's why Lee liked him. Yeah. Uh, sometimes it's better to be lucky than be good, and I think there was a lot of luck in Stonewall Jackson for a long time. Um, you know, who he was, who he was fighting against, I, I often tell people, you know, kind of like what Rob was saying, go back. 
um, into 1863 and look at them in the lens of 1863. Don't look at them in 2020, uh, because what happens is you get that 2020 vision of Jubal Early and others saying just how spectacular he was. Um, and he had his great moments, as, as Rob said, but I'm more fascinated by Robert E. Lee when Robert E. Lee loses his temper. Everyone's like, oh, you know, he's reverend, he's, he does this, he's so nice. No, he had a great temper on him, and nobody wanted to, to, to make Lee mad. Um, it's kind of like George Washington. That's the side of Lee I love to talk about, to hear about. The human side of him. And to understand Jackson's command, you have to understand the man. Um, going back to his childhood, as I said, he has a lot of trust issues which carry up into the battlefield. Um, whenever you're in 1862, look at who he's fighting against. You know, when he loses the Battle of Kernstown, he loses against a West Point graduate. When you go to the Valley Campaign of 1862, which is a brilliant marching campaign, Normally, he outnumbers his opponent, and he's not fighting a West Point trained officer. You know, he's fighting B-list generals um, throughout a lot of it. Once he starts to get into the A-list uh, down there in the, the seven days, he does not perform well. Um, he almost loses, as Rob said, to, to Banks up at uh, Cedar Mountain, and then uh, moves up to Second Manassas, where he really has a, a great battle. He has a great battle at Antietam. He's terrible on the defensive at Fredericksburg. And then here you are at, at Chancellorsville, where, you know, a lot of people say, oh, you know, this was his greatest moment. No, it wasn't. Uh, because the next day, it's going to cost the Army of North Virginia nearly 10,000 casualties just to put that army back together. Uh, so if you're going to say, oh, well, look what, what Jackson did the day before. Yeah, but look what happens the next day when they have to try to destroy Hooker's army. They're going to lose over 10,000 men that next day. And by the end of the battle, Lee's army so ravaged that they can't coordinate. They can't fight anymore. And Lee, that temper comes out. And, uh, you know, Ale uh, E.P. Alexander or Dorsey Penner, I can't remember which one, said on May the 5th that the old man was in a wicked mood today because they could not land the killing blow like Rob said they wanted to do at Fredericksburg and other places. So take the time to, to look at these guys. And, and you know, the last thing I'll, I'll say is one of my favorite comments about the Longstreet and Jackson, you know, whose side are you on, came from a staff ride last year whenever somebody said, you know what, it's like Biggie and Tupac when you got Longstreet versus Jackson, and that's how I look at it. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> and uh, I have nothing to add to that comparison. Oh, well, on that note, I want to thank everybody for joining us tonight. Uh, Rob Orison, Chris White, thank you both for a very entertaining discussion this evening. I'm Chris Mikowski for Emerging Civil War. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you online and on the battlefield. And a few quick production credits to add here to the podcast version. Technical support comes from our engineer, Jackson Mikowski, as well as from Chris White. Our theme music comes from the Second South Carolina String Band. You can find them online at civilwarband.com. And don't forget to join Emerging Civil War online at emergingcivilwar.com. There are 30 of us historians who contribute free content every day, spreading the gospel of the Civil War, trying to connect people with America's great story. We'd love to have you in on that conversation. Please read along. On behalf of my colleagues Chris White and Rob Orison, I'm Chris Mikowski. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you online and on the battlefield. <laughs>